This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. I'm going to tell you several stories today, the first of which has to do with a, or is it an, historical society. If you're listening to the historians, you may belong to a historical society. We have them all over the state. They do a lot of uh, wonderful work, uh, fellowship and things of that nature. I know up in uh, Broad Auburn, they always have a a nice speaking program, and uh, I get a lot of their information during the year. They have a gathering every summer, a picnic, and I hate to like play favorites. I've, I guess I've just mentioned Broad Alban, and in terms of historical societies, one that I've always been interested in is the one in my hometown, the Historica Amsterdam League. But I am going to say one of my favorite places to go Uh, in terms of historical societies, is the Charleston Historical Society. And I always feel compelled, because this is the Internet, and you could be listening in Timbuktu, uh, we're talking Charleston, New York. Now, Charleston in the Carolinas is a well-known history place, but Charleston, New York's uh, not, not shabby in terms of the history offered in that small community in Montgomery County, which is uh, located uh, south of Fultonville and Fonda in the hills that come up uh, from the Mohawk River. I did a talk at the Charleston Historical Society not too long ago, and the folks there were, were very um, appreciative and there, there was a nice crowd, and one thing that always impresses me about the Charleston Historical Society is that the members seem to come from all over, uh, different places. Some from Charleston, but some from other locations. They're sort of known for this society. And as many historical societies do, although many do not, but the Charleston Historical Society has a home. They have a building. And I recently did a column for Focus on History uh, based on that building. The column was titled, A Church Which Refused to Die. Radio and television executive Edith Messerand left New York City in 1952 and moved with her companion and fellow media professional Jane Barton to Windy Hill, a Christmas tree farm on Esperance Road in the town of Charleston, New York. Edith Messeran started an ad agency and became well-known in the Capital District. She used to have uh, fine parties, I understand, never had the pleasure, but uh, broadcasters as diverse as Boom Boom Brannigan, radio DJ, Betty George, who used to be on the TV with her dog Moo, and the uh, great uh, WCSS Amsterdam morning man Lloyd Smith, were among those that attended uh, parties with uh, Jane and Edith. Misarand later embarked on another project, historic preservation. First off, I mean, I think this was sort of an interesting thing. This woman, uh, she was not a historian and so forth. She was a broadcaster. She had been one of the first uh, documentary uh, producers in New York City, one of the first female uh, news people or news executives, which happened for the same reason as Rosie the Riveter, uh, the man who was in charge of the news department, I think it was at WOR in New York City, 
uh, joined the army, and so Edith Messeran became the news director of WOR. Well, anyway, in 1952, she decided to move upstate, uh, out into the country, and have, you know, not retire, but have a business. I think they did sell some Christmas trees from time to time, but her main business was as an ad agency. But in the 1970s, Edith Messeran became town historian. And in 1978, founded the Charleston Historical Society. 1978, I mean, it was not that long ago that this organization was started. The Historical Society's home is Charleston's former First Baptist Church on Poland Road, which was built in 1793 when George Washington was president. For those of us in America, that's going way back. You know, the Europeans maybe somehow scoff at us talking about buildings because they have things like Notre Dame and uh, the ruins of the uh, Roman ruins in uh, in Rome. But we have buildings like this. This was, you know, a really original uh, building from the uh, the time of not the Revolution, but just after. It was built in 1793 renovated in the 1850s. The ancestors of Isla Grandy Phillips were early members of that church, and Phillips wrote in a college paper in 1943, the white church in the clearing with its sheds for the horses, its old-fashioned box stove, and kerosene lights maintained a steady place in the community. Phillips added that the Baptist Church in Charleston became the mother church of later institutions. See, it was the first Baptist church, really, in the area. And later on, there were Baptist churches all over, Rural Grove, Four Corners, Randall, Johnstown, and Amsterdam. But dwindling membership starting in the 1940s led to the church closing in 1955. The abandoned building was severely damaged over the decades by vandals. Thieves stole the church bell and a pulpit chair. The Charleston Historical Society bought the building from the American Baptist Convention for $1,500 in 1978, and volunteers began the long process of renovation. In A History of the Restoration, Edith Messeran wrote, that in 1978, when they started on the renovation, the church was in sad shape. Quote, the pulpit was shattered and the debris on the floor was three feet high. Then county historian Anita Smith advised Messeran that restoration might be impossible. She said, isn't there another project you could work on? This one looked too difficult. But Messeran said the building itself seemed to smile and say thank you for every shovelful of nastiness we took out. She said it was a church that refused to die. And the restoration united the historical society and the local community. Bricks were needed to repair the chimney. Trustee Anna Caird got a phone call from a dairy in Fultonville that had just lost one of its brick buildings to a fire. The Charleston Historical Volunteers picked up the bricks at no cost, wrote Messerand, and uh, except for our own physical effort, sooty hands and clothes, and tired backs. 
The original pastor of the church in 1793 was Reverend Elijah Herrick. In 1978, his descendant, Harold Herrick of Cranford, New Jersey, came to Charleston and expressed his gratitude to the volunteers. It took 2,100 hours of work, done primarily by 10 volunteers, to make the church ready for a public dedication in June 1983 as the building became the home of the Charleston Historical Society. 200 attended. I would say this was a tribute to a lot of people, I'm sure, but Edith Messeran may be chief among them. She really was good at publicity and public relations and, and drawing a crowd, if you will. At this dedication, WRGB, WGY reporter Jack Arnicky was master of ceremonies, and he said, At last we seem to be entering an age of progress with thoughtful renovation instead of the recent age of tearing down and building something new. Then an assemblyman, Paul Tonko, who's now a local congressman, said, you were making history by preserving history. In 1986, an unknown person even returned the pulpit chair that had been stolen from the church to Messerand and Barton's home at Windy Hill Farm. The former church was listed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1994. When Edith Messeran died in 1997, her calling hours were held at the restored 18th century building. Jane Barton died in 2005. The current Charleston Historical Society chairperson as of 2019 is Patricia Prill. And Patricia Prill uh, said the organization today has some 65 members. The church was painted last year. Windows were restored by Alden Witham of Sharon Springs. And new shutters were made by an Amish con- uh, carpenter and have been installed at the church building. New members and contributions are always welcome. I'm sure they're welcome at your historical society also. For information on the Charleston Historical Society, call 518-829-7592, 518-829-7592. You can find some information about the Society on the Internet, but I guess I have to say that they're working on their electronic uh, footprint. By the way, if uh, you'd like me to talk about or we, you want to do an interview about your historical society, send me an email and maybe we can make an arrangement to have you on the Historian's Podcast. My email is bobcudmore at yahoo.com. You're listening to the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. Today, we're giving you some history stories on the podcast. I'd like to talk for a bit about a gentleman that I came to know in recent years after his retirement from a career as a medical doctor, uh, Dr. George Tralka, who lived in uh, Vienna, Virginia. He died last month at the age of 92. What uh, always intrigued me about uh, Dr. Tralka was here was a man who was very successful, and his circle of friends uh, growing up in Amsterdam, New York, all of them became 
rather successful. Uh, they had pursued careers in the military and government service primarily, several of them in the Washington, D.C. area, as did Dr. Trauka. But Dr. Trauka always had a, a fondness for his native place, which is my native place, Amsterdam, New York. Now, Dr. Trauka served, for example, as a rifleman in Germany and Austria in World War II. He became a medical doctor after studies at Georgetown University in the 1950s. He worked in the Washington, D.C. area and overseas as a doctor for government agencies. He was also in private practice uh, for many years, uh, retiring in 1994 in Vienna, Virginia, which is some you know within the orbit of Washington, D.C. George Trauka was born in Erie, Pennsylvania, the son of musician Joseph Trauka and his wife Martha. Uh, Martha died in 1935, and George's father remarried, and the family moved to Amsterdam in 1937 when George was about 10 years old. Although most of his life would be lived elsewhere, he had fond memories of the years spent on Amsterdam's Reed Hill. George's father, Joseph, became church organist at St. Stanislaus Church and correspondent for a Buffalo-based Polish-language newspaper. Joseph taught George to play the violin. Maybe uh, an aside on why the Trauka's moved to Amsterdam. Uh, Joseph Trauka, the father of the family, was a musician, in fact, was even teaching at a college in Pennsylvania for some years. But it just, for whatever reason, my understanding is that it didn't work out. There wasn't enough money in it to kind of pay the bills. So even though being an organist for a Catholic church was not a ticket to fame and fortune, well, maybe some fame, at least on the local scene, but not much fortune. But it was more stable, and it was something that um, Joseph Trauka felt that he needed to do. So he left teaching and moved up to Amsterdam, where he was the church organist and also gave private lessons. In a memoir published last year, George Trauka described his Amsterdam neighborhood, uh, the memoir called Amsterdam, New York, and Beyond. His neighborhood in Amsterdam uh, was uh, one of the Polish sections at the time, and George Trauka described one incident or, or event that took place at the Polish National Association Hall on Reed Street. The church, the the churches, I should say, because there was a church on another hill in Amsterdam, St. John's, that had primarily a Polish congregation. The churches were the spiritual home, but the Polish National Association and other organizations were kind of cultural and social uh, clubs that many of the Polish people belonged to. And Trauka wrote about a talk that he attended at the Polish National Association in World War II, he wrote, quote, It was there that General Tadeusz Bor-Komorowski, the future commander of the Warsaw Rising of 1944, 
spoke it was probably a fundraiser during the war. George said, I knew nothing about him, but I knew I had to have his autograph. I managed to get it as he headed for the exit after his presentation. General Komorowski led this uprising of the Polish people toward the end of the war uh, in Warsaw. In an earlier book, Diary of a Replacement Soldier, George Trauka recounted his own wartime experiences. He was at his family's James Street home the Sunday afternoon that radio broadcasts were interrupted to report the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor. First, he said, he thought Pearl Harbor was in Alaska. His parents went ahead with their plans to go out that day. Let me just stop on that for a moment. I thought of that, the the way uh, George Trauka made reference to this, with those words, pretty much. They went ahead with their plans for that day. I mean, it was kind of reminiscent to to me of what our generations uh, did on the 9-11 day. I mean, what do you do? I mean, this is happening, and by then we're all watching the television. I mean, do you continue to go out? Did you go see Aunt Ruth or Uncle Joe or, or whatever? Well, for whatever reason, that's his parents decided to go ahead with their plans for the day, and George Trauka's assignment was to watch his younger sisters. The next day, though, things were back to a more normal or routine existence, and as uh, George delivered the Schenectady Gazette, he was a, a paper boy, he heard President Roosevelt's Day of Infamy speech on the radio, but he heard it when he was dropping off papers at the Reed Hill Pharmacy, another real institution in uh, Amsterdam's uh, Polish uh, neighborhood. It was a solemn, mo- a solemn moment at the drugstore, he wrote. As his senior year at St. Mary's High School drew to a close in 1944, Trauka enlisted in the Army. His notice to report came a few days before his senior prom, and he was so busy getting ready to leave for the Army that he failed to notify his date that he couldn't attend the prom. Later, his brother accepted George Trauka's high school diploma, and he was told the applause was enthusiastic. Many of his war stories are illustrated with his own drawings. George had been art editor of his high school yearbook. I'd earlier mentioned his friends, his circle of friends in uh, Amsterdam. I imagine there were other people as well, but he named uh, four of them. Harold Langley, Donald Blunkowski, Lou Hage, and John Donlan. Harold Langley had a hand-cranked movie camera back in the 1940s when they were in high school and organized his friends in making a movie called The Mad Mortician, shooting scenes at their homes and using Amsterdam City Hall as a stand-in for an insane asylum. Harold Langley went on to become curator of U.S. naval history at the Smithsonian in Washington and professor of American history at Catholic University. Mr. Blankowski, Donald Blankowski, was a master of social commentary back in the day. He graduated from Georgetown's School of Foreign Service. 
Mr. Hage, Lou Hage, uh, provided sage advice as a teen. He had a long career with the State Department in Washington. John Donlan sang tenor growing up in Amsterdam in a singing group that could be heard an occasionally raffish song under Guy Park Avenue's streetlights, according to George Tralka. John Donlan went on to the U.S. Naval Academy and a career as a nuclear submarine commander. He was the son of Hugh Donlan, a reporter columnist for the Amsterdam Recorder, who wrote a history of Amsterdam in 1980. George Tralka was buried at Quantico National Cemetery in Virginia. This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. A word about our fundraising effort, our GoFundMe campaign. You can help support the podcast by making a donation to GoFundMe. GoFundMe.com forward slash 2019 The Historians. And the good folks at GoFundMe will explain to you how you can make a donation. We'd really appreciate it. If you'd rather donate by mail, you can send a check made out to me, Bob Cudmore, and send it to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horstman Drive in Scotia, New York, and thank you very much. Kind of a Bob Cudmore story fest on this edition of the Historian's Podcast. I write a weekly column for the Daily Gazette newspaper uh, in Schenectady, and many of these stories uh, came uh, from those columns or from uh, several books that I've uh, printed for Arcadia, uh, Stories of the Mohawk Valley, Hidden History of the Mohawk Valley, and Lost Mohawk Valley. Our final story today, I'm recording this in the beautiful summertime or the start of the summertime, is about a summer camp in the Adirondacks that meant a lot to some of the men of the greatest generation, the men who went on to fight in World War II. The camp was called Camp Agaming. I'll spell it in a moment. Camp Agaming in the Adirondacks. When the late Lauren Bud Barnett was covered with mud in European foxholes in World War II, he took his mind off his soldier's plight by dreaming of the beauty of the Adirondacks. Wounded in Germany, when the war ended, he used his muster pay to buy land and build his own Adirondack camp. Barnett's parents, insurance agents in Amsterdam, already had a camp in Wells, and Barnett had been a regular two-week summer camper during the 1930s at YMCA Camp Agaming, spelled A-G-A-M-I-N-G. The camp played a special role in the upbringing of boys who went on to serve in World War II. I longed to come back to that spot, Barnett said. Said to be an Indian word for along the shore, Camp Agaming was on the north shore of Lake Pleasant, near the inlet stream from Sacandaga Lake and the village of Lake Pleasant. The Gloversville YMCA, as I understand it, still owns the property and started the camp in cooperation with the Amsterdam YMCA in the 1920s. In fact, let me get this, uh, make sure we get this in uh, because the time is advancing. The Gloversville YMCA, I believe, still operates 
this camp as a summer camp, or not not the camp itself. I, I take that back. The but the YMCA in Fulton County calls its summer camp program Camp Agaming in honor of the camp. Because what happened was attendance at Agaming dwindled during and after World War II. The property was sold in 1965 and camp buildings were converted into private uh, residences. In the 1930s, a fair number of the campers were on scholarships and did kitchen work in addition to taking part in activities. Some came from the Capital District or downstate. Most were from Fulton and Montgomery counties. During the school year, the YMCA held bean suppers in Amsterdam to promote the next season. Agaming, agaming, we get up when the birdies sing, began the camp song, where the green grass grows and it never snows at agaming. Today, a Fulton County YMCA day campers still sing a different, to, uh, sing a similar tune. At camp, the boys learned archery, played softball and basketball, went fishing and swimming. Occasionally, campers played softball against other camps. Skits were put on during nightly campfires. One 1938 camp counselor was Isidore Dembski who became the movie actor Kirk Douglas. Other counselors were William Blaze, who went on to be an Amsterdam physician, and Bob Query, one of the principals of Ruby and Query Home Decorating. Camp directors included Skipper Jackson from the Gloversville YMCA, excellent at table tennis, Walter Van Hine from the Amsterdam YMCA, an accomplished tennis player, and Don Hale from Gloversville, a skilled fisherman. There were one-day and overnight hiking and canoe outings, with a three-day trip to climb Mount Marcy, the state's highest peak. To get to Mount Marcy, campers rode in the camp truck, or authentic Woody, a Ford station wagon with wooden sides. According to John Bud Reese in an interview in 2002, it was just about the last stage of your life before you noticed the absence of girls. Reese went on to serve in the ground crew for a squadron of P-38 fighters in the South Pacific during World War II. I remember one of the campers, David Wells, who died in the war, Reese said. He was a nice young man. It seemed that those who died in the war were the nicest. Camp counselor Douglas Dembski you know, made an impression on Reese. He said he had muscles growing out of his muscles. He was very popular with the younger folks, but most of all, all the counselors were. Dembski Douglas had charge of the waterfront, according to Reese. I can remember seeing him in the back of the canoe. He looked like a much healthier Charles Atlas. Reese grew up in Chicago, but spent summers with his Amsterdam grandparents, the Brannocks. He retired from an English professorship at Kansas State University. Bob Dunning, who followed in his father's footsteps to become an Amsterdam dentist, attended Camp Agaming for parts of three summers in the late 1930s. Dunning served in the Navy in World War II. He died in 2011. 
It was near enough so it wasn't hard to get there, Dunning said. Everybody knew someone who was also going. It was a good way to learn to swim. Pat Constantine of Amsterdam went there in the year 1939. The YMCA, he said, was more or less for underprivileged kids, for a week of fun. They would choose a group of children, leave them on a truck with their duffel bags. When we got to camp, they'd assign eight kids to each cabin plus one counselor. There was a sports company CEO who would treat us to a buffet when he gave us all baseballs, gloves, and whatever they had. Most of the underprivileged kids paid our dues by taking out the trash, shoveling snow, and sweeping the club rooms after each meeting. Camp Agaming in the Adirondacks. Our final story on this edition of the Historian's Podcast. And I'm Bob Cudmore.